Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, pureandsimplebible.com. And while I rarely play music on this podcast, I want to play something for you. You ready? Have a listen. That was Cool and the Gang with their song Celebration. And this isn't a radio program where I show music, uh, but I'm celebrating and I'm very thankful. It's the 200th episode. That's right, 200 episodes for Pure and Simple Bible. I'm very excited about hitting the milestone. Um, it's very special and you make it very special. I really enjoy producing this and uh, giving it for Christians and for people who are interested in Jesus to listen to and share with each other. It's been such an amazing ministry for me over the past five years to see it organically grow, and I'm so thankful that you've been along for the ride. So for those who've been with me since the beginning and for those that have come on recently, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope, Lord willing, to keep this going. Uh, it's turned into something very special for me, and I'm hoping that it's special for you too. Now, 200th episode. Who am I going to have? Well, it's got to be Dad. Dad, uh, that is Doug Edwards to the majority of you who know him, or if you don't know him, uh, then my dad's name is Doug, is very special to me. And so I wanted to uh, save this milestone for Dad to come on. Um, dad wrote a book. It's been a little bit over a year ago that Dad wrote a book called A King and His House, and it's about the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 and about all of the fingerprints of the Davidic covenant through the Old and into the New Testament. It was fantastic. I loved reading it. I knew whenever I read it that I wanted Dad to bring it on this podcast and talk about it. So we're going to have a discussion about King David uh, and his narrative in the Bible. And then we're going to talk about David as the shepherd king. And finally, we're going to talk about Jesus as the son of David and what that means for us as Christians today. So you're in for a treat. It's going to be a three-part series, so buckle up for the next three weeks. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way you can get these whenever they come out fresh. So without further ado, let's jump into episode 200 with my dad, Doug Edwards, on a discussion about King David, a king in his house, and Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let's begin. Well, how about we begin with just kind of thinking about you writing this book? Uh can you kind of take me through that process where you you're, you know, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and you're kind of thinking about a project you'd like to do? How did you kind of land on this, and and what'd you do to start getting things rolling for writing a book on a king in his house? It came about probably because of, of some studies that I had done. Usually, I've only written two books. I've written the third one; it's a commentary, but I'm not counting it. But the two other ones, the other one beside this one that I came up with, the, it just involved a time of study and a time of uh, thinking and especially of, of wanting to contribute something to the brotherhood. I thought about the, the theme of the book and there, there are other books out there, 
written by other people that are somewhat similar, but I wanted to do something a little bit different, and I wanted to do something for our brotherhood and not necessarily be one that you try to to send to all the the religious world in general, but especially my audience was geared toward our brethren. And yeah. so I've always had a really a special love for the stories of King David. You know, they're they're so exciting. They're so relevant. They're they're uh, so much like a, a good adventure novel. And it has some great spiritual truths in it. And at the same time, in, in thinking about the covenant that God made with David and how it really encompasses the rest of the Bible after that and how it's a major point to the Bible. So I'll sort of put all those things together and come up with the idea that this might be something I could spend some time on since I'm retired, basically, and I have a little more spare time. I have the, the time to do some research and thinking on these things. Yeah. You know, um, in, in the beginning of your book, it kind of, the opening line is suspense, revenge, betrayal, and it's got the, almost like a movie tagline, uh, it seems like this narrative is ripe for the Hollywood treatment, but it doesn't get maybe some of the um, spectacle that, that it deserves. Uh, I, I know there has been some, you know, uh, feature films kind of made on it, but the, the Bible's narrative is always more exciting than Hollywood's narrative. Have you noticed that, that, that whenever they do try to turn it into a movie, it's almost like they cut out all the good stuff. They do. It's really like any book for that matter, not just the Bible. I don't know of any movies that were better than the original book. Generally speaking, movies, at least to me, in my opinion, are a little disappointing compared to the original writing. And that's obviously true with the Bible because the the movie producers and the directors and all that that are putting this together aren't really doing it necessarily from a biblical viewpoint to praise and honor God in his word. They're making a, 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 a something artistic. They're making something creative, you know, to attract people, to entertain people. And so there'll always be a difference, always be a letdown when you try to compare a movie to the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. They hollow out the spiritual and they don't realize thinking that they're making this work of art, they often fall short because they don't understand without the spiritual heart of the narrative. uh, It becomes very hollow and kind of cliche and cheesy. Yeah. So, well, when you write the book, um, you know, for, for our listeners and and I would say, I, I don't know everyone who listens to this program, but I imagine that the majority of people who listen to it are familiar with the, Church of Christ and and uh, are part of, part of what you called uh, the brotherhood that you wrote this for. Um, so they may have heard that you've written it or they may have a copy of it. And, and I know a lot of people who've read it. Um, but just in case someone hasn't, um, I might start with this question and bear with me. It's going to take me a minute to get to it. But your book is kind of divided into two parts. There's a part one which is a summary of the life of David. And then there's a part two about the Davidic covenant. And, you know, the part two is very refreshing and exciting for me as a Bible student, because um, one of the points you make in it early on in that second part is uh, that the Davidic covenant is just as important. It's one of those 
spiritual peaks, so to speak, as other important covenants in the Old Testament. So sometimes it may get lost in the importance whenever people talk about Abraham's covenant or the new covenant we have with Jesus. But before we get to that part of this conversation where we do talk about the Davidic covenant, because I know that's what you're ultimately aiming for, you spend a significant amount of time kind of overviewing David's life and then concluding it with uh, you know, the several things that a shepherd king does. So how about this? Let, let's start just at the beginning. What should a Bible student know about David's beginnings from the Old Testament? Uh, what are some either just a, you know, a, a very, very brief summary or, or some uh, highlights that, that we should understand about him? I think the thing that we need to remember about David, first, first of all, is that David plays a very important role in God's scheme of redemption. And yet the Bible gives us a lot of information about his private life and his, his uh, younger days as well. One of the things that stands out to me is that uh, there's nothing really special about David as far as his birth or his childhood seems to be concerned. He seems to be an ordinary guy, and yet God had plans for him. He's a guy that's not born in some big city. He's born in Bethlehem, uh, which evidently was a village. And he's not born in a big house surrounded by servants. He's born in a humble environment. And in fact, he spends his childhood out in the pastures taking care of sheep, and raising sheep. And in the process, he learns a lot about leadership. Scriptures really stress the idea of God's people being sheep and God's people needing leaders. And that's even true in the New Testament when we deal with the eldership and the congregations. So this, this leadership principle based upon leading sheep is very important. And it prepares David, I believe, for his role as a king. He learned a lot about being a king from sheep. Yeah, when um, David is is approached by the prophet Samuel, um, the Lord says that he doesn't look on the outside, but he looks on the inside. And so David's going to be described as a man after the Lord's own heart. What, what, what do we take from that description about this young man? What does it mean to be a man after the Lord's own heart? Well, it's someone that loves the Lord, you know, with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And I believe that David did. I believe that as David was out in the fields with his sheep, I think he also spent a lot of time in communion with God. I think he was a spiritual-minded young man. You can't help but, if you're spiritual-minded, you can't help but see the glory of God in the heavens. And you can't help but see the, the majesty of our Creator in the world that we live in. And so all these things combined to prepare him. He was spiritual-minded probably to begin with, and then to add to these things, these opportunities to commune with God in nature and privately. It prepared him for when it was his time to kind of appear on the big stage, he was ready because of his relationship, a previous relationship with God. So he's preparing himself um, before any great task comes his way. Uh, but it's not, it doesn't take long for the big task to start coming. Uh, probably, I mean, the, when you say David and, I think most people, even non, uh, 
uh, Bible-believing folks are going to say David and Goliath. And pretty soon after we're introduced to David uh, as the young man, the narrative jumps into this uh, geopolitical struggle between Israel and the Philistines, and David finds himself kind of cast into it. What happens in that narrative, and what can we take away from the David-Goliath story? I believe at this time, David was probably a teenager. When, when Samuel came and anointed him, some of the scholars that I checked with seemed to think that he was maybe around the age of 11, a young boy. But by the time of the story of, of David and Goliath, he was believed to have been a teenager. In fact, he may have been an older teenager. We sort of think of him as being 13 or 14, but several scholars seem to think that he was closer to 18 or 19. So he was more mature. Of course, there was a real problem in Israel. The Philistines had invaded. There was this fight going on for control of, of Israel. And unfortunately, the people of God weren't living up to their end of the bargain as far as being the people they should be. They were scared to death of Goliath. You know, the story of Goliath has been around for a long time, and it's been used in a lot of different ways. It's been used as a children's story, and it's a wonderful children's story. I told you and David this story when you were younger. Right. And I've seen my uh, brother-in-laws, you know, do the same thing with their kids as well. And I know that a lot of people do. It's a wonderful children's story. Mm-hmm. But it's also a great adult story because there are some great themes found in, in David and Goliath. One of the themes, I think, involves the fact that at this point, David was ready to defend God's people. Everybody else was scared of Goliath. You know, when he walked out into the valley and shouted his challenge every day and blasphemed the name of God, those Israelites were shaking in their boots. They were, <laughs> they were scared to death of him. And unfortunately, even Saul and perhaps Jonathan was as well. No one would go and face him. All that he said is, send a man out to fight me. And if your man beats me, then we Philistines will serve you. And if I beat your guy, then you'll serve us. Sounds pretty simple. One-on-one but no one would would take him on. But David did. And David seems to be offended by the fact that this giant was getting away with blaspheming the name of God. So at an early age, in his teenage years, David was ready to defend God's holy name, defend God's reputation against those people who would attack it and blaspheme it. Yeah, I you know, whether it's in your book as you're explaining the David-Goliath confrontation, or um, as one just reads through the Bible, I think you can find it um, just in the Bible itself. But it seems like David David's not afraid or or nervous, at least in, in the things that he says. It, it almost looks like he has faith. He knows that it's going to be God that delivers the victory. So as he interacts with Goliath and then ultimately defeats him, it's not one where he like exhales and goes, whoo, that was a close one. It, yeah, he he comes across as more like I, this. The victory is already assured because we have the Lord on our side, right? That's right. You know, we we all, oftentimes talk about uh, David and Goliath being an example of of the, the greatest underdog story of all time. David was the greatest underdog. Well, that may be a misconception because I'm not sure that David was the underdog in this. Right. <laughs> in fact, when David stepped out into that. That valley that separated these two armies. For for all practical purposes, uh, Goliath 
goose was cooked and he was, uh, you know, he, I guess he would have been the underdog because David, if you want to describe it this way, David was the favorite on this situation. Yeah. Cause he was, uh, he was there with God's power. He was there to defend God. And so there are just so many great stories come out of, of David and Goliath. But you know, one, I think that sometimes we may kind of overlook is the fact that this, what the story really teaches us is to not put our confidence in men. Right. Because that's what both sides initially were doing. The right. Philistines obviously put their confidence in Goliath. And the Israelites had, had really put their confidence in Saul. Earlier, years earlier, when they wanted a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and they asked Samuel for a king, Samuel was a little bit hurt. They could hurt his feelings, but God told him, go ahead and do it. They asked for it, give it to him. And so they selected Saul. Saul was a, a, a big man. He was taller, a head taller than most of the Israelites. He was a handsome man. So he, he was the, the perfect image of a king. And so unfortunately, it appears that, that Israel makes a mistake that a lot of us do. We we base our allegiance on somebody that's bigger and stronger than us, somebody that's handsome, someone that is charismatic. Right. But when you put your confidence in someone like that, there's always going to come along somebody bigger and somebody stronger and somebody tougher. And that was the deal with uh, this story. Goliath yeah. was bigger and stronger and, and tougher than any of the, the Israelites for the matter. So the story of David teaches us, don't put your confidence in men. Don't put your confidence in big men because a bigger man will come along. Well, you mentioned the the king at the moment was Saul. And really, he's the bigger antagonist in the first part of David's life story. You know, Goliath is there for just a moment. You know, there's this episode with Goliath, it seems, but he comes and goes. However, Saul is going to be uh, there up until David, you know, the end of Saul's life is the beginning of David as king. Uh, can you mention, uh, you, know, you talk about it in your book, there's, there's chapters on it, but what David's relationship was like at Saul, how it evolved over time, and, and how, um, you know, it degraded to a point where uh, David has to flee for his life and, and Saul is just kind of going crazy about it. Well, Saul developed a problem. You know, Saul, God sent Saul uh, an evil spirit to trouble him. And at a very early age, David was brought in to play an instrument to calm Saul down. And so I think that was kind of their first relationship. And it was a pretty plain relationship because David presented no threat to him. After David killed Goliath, and David then was brought to Saul's capital and would spend time with Saul, I think God's plan began to unfold that David was going to be the king over Israel and Saul's descendants would not. And at an early stage in this relationship, Saul kind of could see some, some challenge there coming from David. He would make David one of his captains in his army, and David would go out and fight against the Philistines, would be victorious. David would come back to the, the village or the capital, and the women would greet him with this song that 
Saul has killed thousands and David has killed ten thousands. Well, that song got pretty popular. In fact, it got so popular that it was well known even among the Philistines and it would be repeated two more times after this initial time. But Saul was watching. Saul was listening. Saul was observing. And Saul becomes jealous of David. And in fact, he will even at times throw spears at him to try and kill him. Unfortunately, David was very well liked by the people around him. Saul's son, Jonathan, became best of friends with David. In fact, in 1 Samuel, I believe, chapter 18, that they, they make this initial bond of friendship between Jonathan and David. In fact, Jonathan offers David a lot of these things that, that he's wearing and things that he has which sort of seems to be a, an idea that I'm honoring you. Saul's watching. Saul obviously gets jealous again. But David also has an admirer in one of Saul's daughters, and he ends up marrying one of Saul's daughters as well. So David becomes Saul's son-in-law. But Saul never does trust him. In fact, Saul reaches the point where he wants to get rid of David and silence him by killing him. When, I mean, I try to put myself in David's shoes. Um, David flees Saul, and what what kind of phrase would you say, what kind of men kind of followed David during this time? I've always kind of seen it like uh, Robin Hood and his merry men, you know? Uh, the Yeah, that's does the Bible use a specific phrase to talk about the, the type of guy that comes to him? Well, during this time, Saul taxed his people, as most kings do, and probably taxed them too much, and people became upset. So when David becomes, and we're going to call him outlaw and use that in a very loose sense because we're using it in the sense that Saul considers David. God doesn't consider him outlaw, but that's that's the way that Saul sees him. David's on the run. Right. David's right. Saul's, Saul's tried to kill David now a couple of times, and he's after him. So David goes to a cave, and he's hiding there. And the Bible indicates to us that this group of men, several men, about 600, I believe, or so, come to him at this time. And these are men that are perhaps in a little bit of trouble with Saul. They're on the outs with Saul. They object to Saul's kingship. They object to his his taxes and things. So these are men that Saul are not very happy with either. And these men, there are some amazing men in this group. They, they become the nucleus. Some of these men become the nucleus of David's bodyguard and a group called David's Mighty Men. So very early in David's life, long before he becomes king, he already begins to accumulate things that will help him as a king. He accumulates this bodyguard that comes, and he's going to accumulate a priest. He's going to accumulate a prophet that will be with him. So in a in a very limited general sense, it's almost like David's beginning to put together his uh, cabinet already, even though he's right. not. Right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about this time in David's life and the Psalms. Um, I know that the Psalms isn't maybe the thrust of, of our conversation right now, but would you take a moment for our listeners and explain that, you know, when David wrote Psalms, uh, a lot of times he's, you know, pouring out his 
what presently is um, what emotions going through his heart. And uh, while he's fleeing Saul, he writes some psalms uh, under this emotion of distress. They're really powerful. Um, what can we find, or what, I guess what can we connect whenever we see the book of Psalms in David's life? Well, David wrote about half of the psalms. I think something like 73 or 74 of the psalms. And they are at different stages of David's life, too. Some of them are when he, he is older, when he's preparing the materials for the temple. But several of them, as you mentioned, he wrote in his younger years. He wrote during the time that he was fleeing from Saul. There are a lot of times that he almost is saying, there's just a step between me and death. And Saul's after him. There, there are four or five times that Saul almost caught David, and David barely escaped, and other enemies as well. So early in his life, and you know we talked about this earlier, David, as a young boy, evidently was in tune with God and worshiped God even as a young boy. And now as he's a little bit older, he hasn't left God. He still needs God. He still pours out his heart to God. And he cries that, I need you, God. Protect me from these enemies. Well, David's words obviously can have meaning for us as well. And I'm not going to go into any big, long discussion. But but the Psalms, the pouring out of your heart to God and, and telling God of your needs and your concerns, those are the same things we go through as well. Now, maybe we don't have some king that's mentally ill trying to chase us and kill us, but we do have our own enemies. And right. so we can we can learn from David's emotions and see that those are our emotions as well. And we can pour out our heart to God just like David did as well. So early in David's life, he was writing these psalms. That's powerful. It's powerful to think of him on the run for his life, and he's writing poetry. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I would be doing that. So it's, uh, I mean, that's what one of the things that I always found impressive about him is that he's uh, always making time for God, even in times when he could probably say, well, I'm really busy right now, so I'll take care of, you know, quote unquote, the God stuff later. He seems to prioritize God first. And as a result, you know, we're blessed. We get to read about, you know, kind of the distress that he's going through. There is one time when David's quill ran dry during this time. And this was after Saul had chased him for a while. And David went over to the to the Philistines. He oh, joined himself to the Philistines. Right. And in fact, he, he pretended that, that he was a Philistine, he and his men. And so there's a period of time, about 16 months, that David is sort of behind enemy lines. He's, he's trying to escape from Saul, but he's hiding in the land of the Philistines. And the real problem comes about when one time the Philistines decide to invade Israel, and they want David and his army to go along. So David now is between a rock and a hard place. He's He's trying to avoid being caught by the Philistines. He's preparing to be, he's, he's pretending to be a Philistine, but they're about to attack the Israelites and the king wants David along. And so David kind of has to make a decision. What am I, what am I going to do here? But unfortunately, he doesn't have to make the decision. The captains of the Philistines make it for him. They, they come to the king and they say, now look, you've got this David and you've got 
his men with him. And you've got to remember there, there was this song they used to sing a while back. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. They brought that song up again. And they said, you don't know what David's going to do in this battle. So the king excuses David from the battle, tells him to go home. So fortunately, David doesn't have to decide if he's going to fight against Israel or, or whatever he's going to do. Right. But he gets home and he finds out that his village where his wives and his men's wives and children, that it's been attacked by a group of Amalekites and the village is, is in a, it's burned down. It's all rubble. His men, no doubt, are thinking they've killed our wives. They've taken our wives and children and they're ready to stone David. And it's at that point that David inquires of God. It's been 16 months while he was the land of the Philistines, that he doesn't inquire of God. But you have to say this about David, that even though he made a mistake here, he comes back to God, he knows where to come, and he inquires of God, and God then blesses him. Mm -hmm. Now, I know we're summarizing, but uh, eventually David's going to come to the throne. Um, What leads to that? You know, we, at this point, as I'm asking this question, Saul is still on the throne. What leads to the change in monarchy and how does David, um, how does he, I guess, how is he as a king towards the beginning of his reign? Well, David believed very strongly that, that Saul was God's anointed and he would not lift his hand against Saul and he wouldn't let anybody else lift their hand against Saul. There were men that claimed that they had killed Saul. And one especially would come, and David would have him put to death. Anyway, Saul was king. Jonathan, as far as Saul was concerned, was next in line. But in this battle that the Philistines fought with the Israelites, which we just described that that the king wanted David to be a part of, in this battle, Saul was killed. Jonathan was killed. And another brother was killed. And only one child of Saul remained alive and he evidently wasn't a part of the battle after this battle the men of Judah came and made David king of Judah there was another fellow by the name of Ishbosheth if I'm pronouncing it correctly some of these names are kind of hard to pronounce right son, son of Saul that was appointed the king of uh, Israel David was the king of Judah so you have this period of a divided nation at that time. And so there was civil war back and forth, but David grew stronger. The kingdom of Israel grew weaker until finally Ishbosheth was assassinated and all the men of Israel came and made David king. So David ruled Judah for seven years. He was about 30 years old. Then after about seven years, all of Israel made David king. So David becomes king of Israel all of Israel, at about the age of 37. Yeah, and as a, sh- a shepherd king, um, you make the point, you know, first David was a defender with Goliath, and now he's a uniter. Um, what, I mean, you, you kind of just explained what's happened, but what, how is that important as the shepherd king for David to be the uniter? 
at this time, the, the Ark of the Covenant was not really with God's people. It was at the household of a fellow, I think, by the name of Abinadab. And it was sort of isolated, kind of just gathering cobwebs, basically. It wasn't a part of, of the people's worship to God. When David became king, I think he did two very important things when he became king over all of Israel. First thing he did is he conquered Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at this time was not his capital. And in fact, it was held by a people called the Jebusites. But David sent his army and they conquered it. And he is in the process of uniting his people. He now unites them, number one, politically. This was, this was a really good location, a proper place. It wasn't going to offend anybody. So Jerusalem becomes his capital. He unites his people public, uh, politically. But the second thing he wants to do is unite his people spiritually because they're not what they should be, because they don't have the Ark of the Covenant with them, which is an indication of the presence of God. So that involves a little story of where David sends to bring the Ark of the Covenant back, and they put it on a new cart, and a fellow by the name of Uzzah, remember, touches the Ark when it looks like it might uh, slip, and he's struck dead by God, and people are scared, and frightened by what's going on, and David goes home, does his homework, finds out we didn't bring it the right way. We've got right. to bring this ark. We've got to put this ark on poles and let the Levites carry it in. So they did it, and they bring the ark into Jerusalem, and it's a great day. The presence of God now is associated with the ark, and so you can say in a sense the presence of God is back with Israel. He has united his people spiritually. They are now able to approach God in worship and service. So the shepherd king defends and he unites. Um, a third one that you have as the narrative is going on, we're in the book of 2 Samuel, is that he extends grace. Um, how is that done? What, what does David do to extend grace other than simply just being a gracious king? Well, there's a little story recorded there about a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a grandson of Saul and a son of Jonathan. Now, he was lame. He had been dropped when he was a little boy, about five years old, and was lame in his legs and couldn't walk well. But he was, I think, in the process of hiding. He was located in a little village on the eastern side of the River Jordan. One time, David called his people together and said, I, I want to show kindness to any descendants of, of Jonathan. I made a covenant with Jonathan that I would take care of his family and not hurt them, and I want to, to honor Saul as well. And so someone came back, one of the uh, servants by the name of Ziba comes back and says, there is a young man by the name of Mephibosheth, but he's lame. So David sends his men over and gets Mephibosheth, and you know, we kind of read between the lines here, but it was common practice in that day that when there was a, re a change in regimes, a change in families occupying the throne, that the new family would really put to death about all of the, the heirs, potential heirs of the old family. Right, they'd clean that was one reason why Mephibosheth was kind of hiding. Yeah. You, can almost, you can almost imagine him hiding in this little house out kind of in the middle of nowhere, because that's what this place indicates. 
And there's a knock at the door, and here's these big, strong, muscle-bound soldiers there saying, we want Mephibosheth, and he's coming with us to the king. It probably scared him to death. He, he may have been able to see the handwriting on the wall as far as he was concerned. Anyway, he, he's brought back to Jerusalem. He comes before King David, and he falls prostrate before David. He humbles himself before David, and he said, I'm here. But David says to him, don't fear. Don't be afraid. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to reinstate you. I'm going to do two things for you. Number one, I'm going to reinstate to you all the lands of of Saul. You're going to receive Saul's lands. They will be your lands now. So that meant riches. That meant an easier life. He also said, that I'm going to allow you to eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. And what a blessing it was to eat at the king's table. And so what we have here, <coughs> excuse me, is a picture of, of David extending grace to a potential problem. And that, in a sense, is kind of what grace is. You know, grace is when you receive something that you don't deserve, God's unmerited favor. And so this is just a simple little story illustrating the fact that as a shepherd king, David was also a gracious king. He offered grace to those who mm. potentially didn't deserve it, but he gave it to them. You know, <clears throat> there's times when David, like you mentioned earlier, uh, if you harmed the Lord's anointed, justice was served pretty quick. Uh, the, the people that, that claimed to um, kill Saul and Ishbosheth, David doesn't show mercy. But there are times when people deserved justice that he did show mercy. Not, I'm not thinking of Mephibosheth, but I am thinking of other uh, people that that David probably could have asked to be executed, but then he also, you know, gave them. He was patient with them. So is that part of the, you know, after the Lord's own heart type of character that we're seeing is, you know, in times where someone could bring on the wrath, uh, righteous wrath, but instead they, they show mercy towards those who may not deserve it? David was exhibiting some of the characteristics that God possesses in that situation and that later yeah. Jesus would possess, the, the idea of mercy. God is God of wrath. And he will punish sin and he will punish his enemies. But at the same time, God is also gracious. And when people, his enemies do turn to him, he, he will forgive and he will extend mercy. And so this is another one of the characteristics that David possesses that helps us to see that he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, as we know from a lot of stuff that happens in his life. But he had this spirit about him, this gracious spirit, this this forgiving spirit of others on occasions. And that helps us to that helps us, I think, to see the, the coming of Christ. You know, we're not getting into this yet, not jumping ahead too much. But David is is a type of Christ. And as we go through this story, we need to kind of remind ourselves that all some of these events that happen in these stories illustrate the fact that someone greater than David's coming, and it will be the Christ. Right, right, exactly. And 
something you just said in there, you know, David wasn't perfect. Um, I think just because of the limits of, of what this recording is, we're not going to get to discuss every detail about David's imperfection, but it's pretty obvious during his kingship that he's not a perfect man. I mean, David is guilty of some vile sins uh, in the, the his, his uh, relationship with Bathsheba, where he ends up orchestrating the murder of her husband, the way that he's uh, preferential towards Absalom over his other sons that leads to a civil war where he's almost killed and uh, several of his children or his sons are, are killed. Um, there's a lot in here where David isn't portrayed as, as really the ideal person. I, and people, it's probably a tragedy that I'm, I'm going to gloss over all of that so much, but Towards the end of David's life, <clears throat> there's a, a time when he does evil, and uh, he's asking for a, a census, and then there's a lot there about why he asked for the census, but um, in this moment where he, he is able to repent, and in all of those episodes, you might want to comment on this, Dad, actually, he, he repents, and we find that part of his being a man after God's own heart is that his, his willingness to hear truth and to repent of it. But there's a time specific towards the end of his reign in 2 Samuel 24 where uh, you bring out the idea that David is willing to die for the people. What What's going on there briefly, and how does you know his willingness to die, how does that highlight him as a shepherd king? Oh, we're going to cut it off right there. And we didn't quite make it to the end of the narrative of David's life, so you're going to have to come back next week. And you're going to have to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that yet either. But come back next week. Let's finish up this discussion on the life of David, uh, talking about him as the shepherd king, foreshadowing Jesus as the shepherd king. And then we'll jump into the second part of the conversation, which is Jesus as the son of David and what the Davidic covenant was all about. So you really need to come back. It's a great conversation. And if you're interested in the book that Dad has written, you can email me about it at pureandsimplebible at gmail.com, and I will connect you to him to get a copy of that book. So until next week, you can go to the website, check out all the resources that are there to utilize absolutely free. And always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.